Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So every time I get the imposter syndrome, I think, well, Einstein was a lowly teacher. He got rejected so many times for his ideas. And look how that revolutionized the world. Darwin was someone who just happened to get onto the ship and ended up becoming someone who totally changed our understanding of evolution. So I think no matter how small you imagine yourself to be, we each have absolute multitudes within us. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. If you're enjoying our podcast, why not follow us on Instagram, where we post daily? You'll find us if you search for Don't Stop Us Now podcast. And now for this week's episode. Our guest today is the one and only Natalie Nahai, who's known as the Web Psychologist. She's an author and an in-demand globe-trotting speaker on how to apply behavioral science to all things digital to make them more effective and ethical. Natalie's amazing. She's one of those people who's good at lots of things. She started out as a recording artist. She got a degree in psychology and was also a web designer. What's more, she's now studying art full-time as well as doing her day job. And she's a brilliant artist. She sure is. You should see her Instagram profile. I have done that. In our conversation today, you'll hear how Natalie juggles life and the unique way she prioritizes what to say yes to. We'll learn how she went about reinventing her career. She shares fascinating research on how the color of what we wear can affect how intelligent we'll be perceived to be. And the killer one-liner Natalie uses when she feels she's been harassed. We met up with Natalie in London, where she was en route from her home in Barcelona, heading to New York. A quick mention here that there's some colourful language, so if you are sensitive to this or you've got little ears around you, you can monitor accordingly. So, enjoy this episode with the unique and wonderful Natalie Nahai. Natalie Nahai, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. And here we are sitting in a London studio. And I believe you're sort of en route between Barcelona and heading to New York. Is yeah, that right? Between countries at the moment. Well, we're thrilled to have you with us today. Let's get started with you call yourself a web psychologist, which I love that term. It's so unique. How would you describe what you do? So it kind of sits at the intersection of behavioral sciences, interface design and online behavior. So how do we use psychology, behavioral economics to design environments that shape our behaviors? And then what does that mean in terms of the ethics of how we design these frameworks and how it impacts our lives? Web psychologist, I full credit to you. I think you're the world's first. <laughs> um, but what did you want to be when you were sort of growing up as a, a young child, teenager yeah. and the like? Honestly, when I was little, I was always going to be an artist. And I'm actually currently now studying classical and fine art, like realist art, 
in Barcelona while I work. But that was always my dream. And then also being started off on music when I was little, my mom made me and my brothers take up violin lessons. So there's always been the music as well. But with the web psychology thing, I kind of came up with a term that I thought would be novel enough for people to pay attention, but familiar enough that they wouldn't feel that it's a giant leap to imagine what it might be. So back in 2011, I was conscious of the fact that we apply behavioral science principles to design physical environments, but we hadn't yet done it for virtual environments. UX wasn't yet a thing. The behavioral economics books hadn't come out, you know, the big ones by Kahneman and Thaler. And I was really frustrated. I was thinking, surely there's got to be some resource like a master's I can do or a book I can read or a PhD. Nothing. There was nothing that fulfilled my curiosity. So I kind of thought, well, fuck it. I'm just going to write the book that I would wish had been written. Yeah. And because of that, I thought, well, let's just call it web psychology. I'll call myself the web psychologist. And because the tech field is so heavily dominated by men, or at least it was at the time, I wanted to come in strong and assertively with the branding, hence the, the, I wanted to create a space for that and carve out the brand. And by all measures, I think it's been fairly successful. I think it was an incredibly insightful and of its moment and time decision. <laughs> and we want to explore much more about the sort of work and the insights that you can share with people. But before we do, you know, I think the originality you had to come up with the web psychology, the web psychologist was part of you reinventing yourself. Because if I'm not mistaken, you were really passionate about music in your sort of early 20s and, and actually sort of set off down that path. So yeah. what happened? And <laughs> <laughs> so when I was 16, I ended up teaching myself guitar and I ended up going onto the folk music scene, but it was kind of like a, a mix between folk and a bit of jazz and a bit of country. And I have family out in Atlanta and I ended up in a studio and I ended up recording over the course of a few years, a couple of albums and making some inroads with some of the smaller labels out there. And so I'd kind of dedicated myself to doing this music. And I kind of hit the age of about 25, which is so young. And one of my cousins who is a music lawyer in LA, very successful one, he was like, look, you're not going to make it. You're 25, you're female, you're in folk. This means people who are going to pour money are not going to pour it into you. You might get pregnant. The ridiculous thing that made me so angry. You might get pregnant, there's naps that's happening, folk music isn't a thing. You need to just not find something else. And I was devastated. I didn't write or sing for about a year. But what it did allow me to do was to give it a final push before giving it up. And that's where the website came in. I thought, well, fuck it, I need a website. I'm not going to pay some dude like two grand back in the days when it's 2000. You can't get anything for 2000 now. So I learned how to design and code websites. And that kind of led me to the path that I'm on now, which is to synthesize the design side, which is creative and physical, with the psychology side. And then I think because I had such an anger about the music industry being so pretty toxic place, I think, if you're a musician, and more so if you're female is my experience, I wanted to make sure I didn't get taken advantage of again by the system. And so that helped fuel the reinvention. What were the key things you did to make sure you weren't taken advantage of again? The first thing was to make sure that my strategy was as watertight as it could be. So really researching the area, making sure there was a market. So for instance, I decided to start blogging about these themes for about a year before I took it to the format of a book. It got pretty well received, which is great. I then did a lot of reading around gender psychology. So things like how if you're a woman, you go to an interview and you're wearing a dark color like black or navy. In the study that I read, women are generally more perceived as more competent, intelligent, capable, all of these things. And I thought, well, I'm going to use that. Are you kidding me? And then also secondary sexual signifiers, so things like breasts and long hair. So if I want to go on stage, you know, I present as a very feminine woman. I want to be feminine, but I will make sure that my arms are covered up to about my elbow. I've got dressed down to my knees and my boobs are not on show as much as I love all of these yummy things. So I could maintain the femininity, but also a harder edge and be taken more seriously. 
it sounds as if you really thought about that credibility piece. Mm. Coming in and designing a whole new sort of field, have you ever dealt with that sort of inner critic, that self-doubt? Yeah. How how do you get through it? Honestly, two words of my mantra for about three or four years, and that was fuck it. Because I looked at the people around me and I thought, God, if you can get away with the stuff that you're teaching, especially a lot of the sort of marketing gurus I was seeing in the US, I thought, this is absolute bullshit. There's a lot of people were giving these talks on how to do X, Y, and Z, but there's very little substance. And I know that women have a harder time proving their credibility. And so we have to go above and beyond. And we have these expectations of ourselves as well. So I thought, if I'm going to even the playing field, I need to be so much better than all of these people I'm up against. And so I was like, right, I'm going to make sure that it's so much better. And there were three other writers at the time who I thought were brilliant, who were doing similar work, two guys and another woman. And I could see that the standard just when we came into the market was high. We were putting in something that's quite high. And so that gave me confidence that I could actually contribute to a field where the competition was quite full. So it sounds like you've got lots of tactics. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we all have it, don't we? How how does that actually show up in you, this sort of self-doubt? So I think originally the anger kept the doubt at bay. And it was a sense of, I'm not going to get taken advantage of. I'm going to make sure that this whole field is strategized. So I I know exactly what my plan is going to be. I'm going to make sure that the bar is so high that it's going to be hard for other people to match it because it takes a lot of effort and late nights to write a book and to make sure it's well-researched. It's painful. And most people aren't willing to go through that pain. A lot of women are. This is the difference, I think, in many instances. So there was that. So initially, there wasn't that much self-doubt. And there was the naivety of not ever having written a book. So I thought, fuck it, how hard can it be? (laughs) Which is great. I wholeheartedly think that naivety is a brilliant place to start. But then you've got to be able to follow through. Absolutely. But the best projects I've embarked on have always involved a big dollop of naivety. And then, oh, God, I'm too far now. I've got to follow through. I can't give it up. Yeah. And then you just, but you do, you find a way. But then the negative voice, I think... One of the things is that this imposter syndrome of looking at people who are now doing things in the UX space or have degrees in or PhDs in psychology in very specific niche areas. And I have to keep reminding myself that this wasn't available to me when I was doing the work that I wanted to be doing. There wasn't another opportunity. And so that trying to find ways to not undermine or minimize what I've achieved, given that that was the only path forward and that there might have been some kind of contribution that I've made. And then also when it's things like speaking on stage, I mean, I hate to admit it, but silly things like if I've had, I don't know, a holiday recently, I've eaten loads of, I don't know, cake. I love food. I love food. So my weight fluctuates a bit, not massively. And it's such an internal thing, but things like that. How do I present? Do I look confident enough? Am I speaking too quickly? Is this content at the right pitch? And just nerves. Every time I speak, I have nerves, unless I'm super jet lagged, which has happened twice in my life. And that's been fine. But every other time I get up to speak, I'm super nervous. And then it's kind of just the feeling of is this going to be okay? How do you channel the nerds? How do you get on top of them? Great. So some things that you can do, which are super easy, which I've learned. The first thing actually is just to let your system calm down to the cortisol and adrenaline spike that you get. So I will often do continuous breathing for 10 counts. So what that means is you count an in-breath and an out-breath as one, but you don't take a pause between the breaths. It's like, And you could count one, two, all the way to 10. And what it does, not only does it get more oxygen in, because often we tighten our diaphragms when we're nervous, because it's that whole freeze, fight or flight, but it also gives you something to focus on. So that's the first thing I do, which actually really helps. The second thing, if I'm really stressed before going on, I will take myself off somewhere and do star jumps. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it just helps my body to move and it gets us out of that sense of stuckness when you've got all of this pumping through. Another thing that I used to do at the beginning, which I found super helpful but there are caveats to this, is um, the literature around Amy Cuddy's power posing, which is a shortcut. It's seen as a shortcut to getting more confidence, but 
actually subsequent research has shown that it's typically for things which you have some competence in. So if you feel confident but nervous about something, then taking a power pose can be quite helpful. So I might do that and do the breathing. Nowadays, mostly what I do, which is the most tactical thing you can do, is make sure that you know that the first three to five minutes of your talk, you have absolutely nailed. You've done it literally 10, 15 times as much as you need to, even if it's like a hundred times, it's not gonna be that much. But yeah, I would literally go again and again and again and again. So that when you're standing on stage, your brain knows with the nerves, I've got this, I've practiced it, my brain knows what it needs to say. And then because you've eased yourself in and you've landed, the nerves give way to exhilaration. That for me has been the absolute key. Practicing, practicing, practicing before going on, having my opening keynote phrases, and then off you go. So what's been the hardest part of reinventing yourself? Oh, the hardest part. Can I have a few? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, it's a double edge. So one of the aspects is getting to spend quite a lot of time by myself, being able to dive in deeply, because I find that often I would get bored through lack of stimulation in academic context at school and university, I used to get bored. So it's meant that I can set the pace for myself. But the flip side, of course, is being alone a lot which I enjoy, but to a certain point, then you can't get out of your own head. And it means that then you can end up, I don't know if this resonates with your listeners, if you're listening right now, the sense of just not being able to let go of the work, so not being able to switch off. And so that sense of just continuously thinking about something, especially when it's book writing. Another aspect that I think is hard is having to focus on one aspect of myself, because many entrepreneurs have multiple aspects of themselves and will bring those different elements into their businesses or they might start with that and then as the business develops parts of them get left to the side so the creative part might give way to the pragmatic part whatever it might be so that trying to find a way to integrate the different aspects so that I can feel more fulfilled and rounded on a day-to-day basis has also been a challenge and how have you actually done that (laughs) well (laughs) previously I've run my life in like projects so I'm like right next edition of the book this will take me six months always takes longer than six months and then I'll just sort of squirrel away and do that intensely for a certain amount of time and then that'll be the businessy bit done and then I'll go off and I don't know spend some time traveling and that'll be the travely bit done and then the music bit and that can work for a while but currently the way that I've done it is to create a situation in which most of the content that I now use I have like a bank and I'm familiar with all of it. So if I get asked to talk, I'm not constantly generating new material. So it means that I can do, I don't know, maybe 22, 23 talks a year and not have to spend loads of time investing and changing material, which means that all the rest of the time I now have free-ish to pursue other things like the art or music or reading or conferences on ethics and things like this to explore a Great. little bit. Great. I love mm. that idea of modulizing everything mm. and putting it all together. <laughs> I think it depends on what your needs are. I mean, some people find that really exciting because then you get to dive deep into one thing and then move on. Other people, it can be quite jarring and I suppose different times of life as well, it can be either more or less feasible. And if we think about the actual ideas that you've generated and all this this bank of content that you've got, how would you sort of summarize the domain of subject matter that Mm. it covers and what are a couple of typical problem use cases that you help answer with your knowledge? Okay. So broadly, I would say it's about the psychology of online behavior and persuasion and meaningful engagement. So if you have a problem such as I don't know how to reach the right people or how to make my content more persuasive or more meaningful, then you can apply certain psychological principles to help create an experience which is going to be more exciting, more joyful. But then obviously woven within that, you have to talk about ethics because on the one hand, you have mutual benefit, persuasion for good, where you're facilitating a much better experience. So for instance, an example would be a brand that you love. They make it easy for you to buy. They make it fun to interact with them. 
great because it's actually mutually beneficial. On the other end of the spectrum, you have more kind of manipulation and coercion where you're, you're duping people into specific actions that don't serve them. So the ethics part also plays a role. So problems include the ethical application and then making sure that as an industry, whether you're looking at tech development, the hardware staff or the software or the content, they're taking, we're taking responsibility. And it seems like you've got a real gift in taking research and thinking more deeply about different pieces of research and then packaging it in a way that we all can understand and use. How do you do that? You know, what's the thought process and your creative process around that? Because that's a, a real strength of yours, I think. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't been asked that before. I think the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that my, so my, my dad taught A-level physics and he taught me physics at A-level. And the reason I did A-level physics with him, not because I'm naturally gifted in it, I'm not. My brother got all those genes. He taught me GCSE physics within five days over a half term and I got an A. And we had the worst, most misogynistic, grim teacher ever. So if he did that, I was like, if you can teach me this and I can get an A, then I'm going to do physics with you at A-level because it's super interesting. And so I did. And I saw how he would make sure that through the experiments that we'd run and practical examples, he'd give the high-level theory, this is the principle, and give real world examples of how you can use it. And I thought, this is amazing. And the same with my psychology teacher at A-level. She would read the research, we'd talk about it for a bit, and then she would enact the principles in class. I thought, this is amazing that we can actually use our knowledge because most environments in which we learn, we don't learn. We don't internalize any of the knowledge. We don't use it. We don't apply it. And I think it's a huge waste, really. What's the point in learning if you're not actually going to apply the stuff? So when I look at the research that's there, I always think, Number one, what does this actually mean? Number two, how is this useful? Number three, how do we use it? So that's it. So I think with the book, my overall framework in terms of setting things out, it's high level principles, examples of it in a practice, and then how we break it down to use it in our day-to-day lives. The world that we're living in digitally is just so overwhelming, isn't it? I feel like we're going through a stage where we've got all this digital stuff happening and we don't really know how to deal with it. Yeah, I'm hoping in the future that we'll have a much more healthy relationship with it. But for now, what are your sort of tips or advice on how to take the best of a digital experience, but still be like a normal present <laughs> person? Great, great questions. So several practical things that you can do. The first thing is that generally speaking, our attention and decision-making banks are greater in the morning. So if you can, for the first two, at least two or three hours of the day, keep your phone with the notifications off, sound off, so that you can really focus on what you need to focus, that will make a huge improvement in terms of performance, presence, quality of life, output, etc. So that's practical tip number one. Second one, the other thing that I think we could really benefit from is a sense of being able to really make the most of being present with other people. So that means putting your phone away at dinner. I know some of my friends have this ritual of having, they've got an empty fishbowl and they put their phones in the fishbowl on silent before having dinner with their families. If you have the phone out on the table, which in the States sometimes they do like, it's called phone stacking, you still have a physical reminder of what you're potentially missing. And so it's a trigger for us wanting to seek that reward so we don't relax properly. So I would say keep your devices off dinner tables Another thing that I think is really good to do is also to take blackout holidays. I know that requires maybe a little bit more self-control and motivation, but it just allows you to unhook from that constant sense of reward seeking and fragmented attention and to remind you that actually 
we miss so much when we're constantly seeking to stimulate ourselves. <laughs> it sounds a bit naughty, but to, you know, to allow yourself to actually be where you are, to feel the wind on your skin, to speak to people, to feel that sense of whatever it is, awe or disgust or boredom. Boredom is brilliant. Get bored and become creative. Things like that that you can do. Yeah. What are you thinking of? So I think taking your phone out of your bedroom is a good oh, yeah. thing. Not that I'm particularly brilliant <laughs> at it, but you know, I think when I am good at it, it makes a big difference mm. and not sort of reaching for your phone first thing. Mm. I was reading about somebody who for the last nine years, her and her family have had detox Saturdays. Oh, great. Oh, yeah, like a digital Sabbath. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant um, idea. She was saying how much that had impacted her productivity, which, huh. you know, often you don't think about the fact that this is actually reducing your productivity, but yeah. it actually is. I sort of want to go back a little bit to the way that you're juggling your life because, you know, it's really, it's quite unique, I think, in the mm -hmm. fact that you're studying and you're running a business and you've managed to fit in podcasts. You, you've actually got your own podcast mm. as well, as well as writing books. And, <laughs> you, you <laughs> when know, you put it like that. <laughs> all of this stuff that you're juggling. How do you actually practically do that? Mm. Okay, I think several things. Number one is having a clear idea of what I want to say yes to. Because obviously, if you're juggling, it takes a lot of effort to juggle and it is stressful. I'm not going to say it's not hard because it is. So deciding what I feel is valuable and will help cross-pollinate ideas or projects that I have on the go. So for instance, the podcast that I decided to do, The Hive, it was a way of me kind of getting a sense of the territory around conversations of how tech's impacting relationships, the role that it might play in politics, all these different subjects, which are then helping to inform the content that I create when I give talks. So it's a sense of how can I work on projects that help move me in a direction where everything's working somehow together. And so if I'm thinking about things like the art, for me, it's a sense of, well, this is something that really gives me joy. I did it as a sabbatical. Originally, it was just supposed to be for three months and then I stayed. But it really helped me to tap into something which I felt like I had lost. And it's this slowed down, it's a very sensual thing because you're actually, you know, you're physically making marks on a paper. And when you complete it, there's something that exists that wasn't there before. So it's a very tangible thing. So I think finding what nourishes you and finding ways to do several projects that get you closer to where you want to be. From a practical perspective, if we're thinking about time management, I tend to know that the rhythm of my year is such that conferences happen at specific months during yeah. specific periods so then I know okay well if I'm free pretty much from January through March then I can really go hell for leather on the academic stuff or the course or whatever and I know that April May is going to be super busy or September and October are really busy so that's fine I know that I need to block out those periods and then I can find other times in the year for other things yeah and then also being able to say no to things super important that is super super important and yeah. something many people struggle with yeah so how do you how do you do it flowchart <laughs> flowchart <laughs> no seriously because I used to take on all these different events and it's exciting things and I you know as you can tell I, I get seduced by lots of things at once so my problem is actually saying no to stuff and so one of my friends at the time said okay we need to create a physical flowchart for you we're going to sit down you're going to map it out and he made me do it it was great and so it could be for instance if it's a talk number one do I want to do the talk yes okay does it pay yes am I free yes fine do it simple if it's okay does it pay no does it give you exposure now people will always promise exposure and rarely is it actually anything valuable if it's something pro bono which aligns with my values great I'll do it if it's something which is south by southwest then it makes sense because you've got a wider audience so kind of mapping out by looking at your past really high impact 
project saying, okay, what was it about this that really works for me? Then creating a flowchart off of that to say, okay, yes, it's well paid. Yes, it aligns with my values. Yes, it helps me improve whatever it is. You can then create something physical to look at so that when the email comes in, you think, oh, I should do that. Whenever there's a should, always examine it. Look at the flowchart. If it falls into the category of the yeses, go. If it doesn't, bite the bullet and say no, because it will free up space for more of the things that you need and that you want. And we struggle with that ourselves because we <laughs> no. we have quite a number of balls in the air. You know, so an example is next year, we're looking at our corporate work mm. and saying, well, you know, we think we've got these big bits locked in. So we're going to say no to everything else. Mm. And then something really, really interesting comes along. So how along. do you manage it when it does? I think you have to make compromises. You yeah. have to say you're not going to do something else and you have to have that sort of rigor and discussion. I see. I stress. So that's another one of the negative things. It's like, I look at a lot of other people who are leading lives where they're going in one specific path. Oh, well, none of us go in one specific path, but they focus in one area, let's say, or one direction. Yeah. And I envy them. I'm like, oh my God, like my brother. Wonderful. I adore my brother. He's got a job that he really loves. It's pretty much nine to five. He's got a family life. And I'm sitting here sort of thinking, that looks quite tempting. He's got some kind of security. And I'm like, yeah, but I get to do things like this in the middle of the day and then trot off over here and go to this conference and the rest of it. And it's that question of what would happen if I just collapsed all my options into one and just went for it? I really struggle with that. But then if I just do one thing, I get bored. So then everything is, well, nothing benefits. I think it's that balance. I think a lot of people on, on the outside would look at what you ladies are doing, maybe what I'm doing and other people and go, oh, they've got it all together. We don't. Constantly <laughs> trading off. Isn't yeah, it? you yeah, are. Constantly yeah, constantly trading off. And then thinking, well, if I do this, does this suffer? And then maybe it does, but then maybe I've got a lifetime to work on this. And then what about the urgency of this particular project and it's yeah. tough actually. I'd love to turn now building on something you touched on earlier how right in the early days you also sort of studied gender psychology but mm. how has it been being a woman in this field and being a speaker? Have you ever experienced bias? I've actually been pretty lucky with my experiences compared to some of the other women who I've met and we've had a lot of discussions about this because obviously it's important to share these stories together. I was always aware from the beginning of a few trends that I didn't see men having to deal with. So things like at the beginning, not so much now, I have to say, but the beginning when guys would quote unquote ask questions, they wouldn't. Often, not all men, of course, but many in these arenas would A, presume to know more than me, having not read anything. I'm like, dude, your question isn't even well researched. And B, then proceed to answer the question as if they know the answer. I'm like, why the fuck are you asking me a question? Just shut up. Leave this floor for someone else. So that's something which I used to really get pissed off about. There have been a couple of occasions where, well, I want to go into massive details, but where people have gotten drunk and they've gotten a bit aggro and I've had to mediate my responses. Usually if someone kind of slaps you or something like this, like on the arse or something, my first response is to whack him around the fucking face. If you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. And I hit hard. But of course you can't as a woman. Well, quote unquote can't because it's aggression and it's, and then it's GBH and the rest of it. And so it's that thing of what's going to create the greatest impact and draw a boundary so clearly that they will never do it again and that leaves your reputation intact, which is crazy that we have to even consider these things. And so the line that I ended up coming up with at five in the morning one time when this happened, there's a group of us together after a conference and this guy did this. I leaned over to reach a beer and he slapped me on the ass. I don't even know this guy. And I just looked at him and I was like, how am I going to deal with this situation? Bearing in mind, it would be a few drinks in. Not even that many, but like, and I just looked at him and the whole group fell completely silent. And I just looked at him and I said something like, that was completely inappropriate. And I just locked 
his eyes and he fell completely silent, went completely white and then just apologized there and then. And the next day I caught him accidentally in the lift and he was apologizing profusely. And so I've learned that that line for me has worked really well. It's just to be super quiet, composed, lock them in the eyes. That was completely inappropriate and that's it. And you don't say anything after that. It's like negotiation. You just have to be super clear. And it's not great that we have to, but that's what I found tends to be the most effective. I'm a great believer in having lines up one's sleeve because yes. it's it's in the shock of the moment where it can be yeah. really quite hard to think on your feet, for sure. Totally. And that's what I think allows many of these behaviours to continue. So, Natalie, I actually don't know how old you are, right? So this this question might be, <laughs> this might, might be relevant or not. But okay. And listeners, she looks really young. She does look really young. So Natalie, if you went back to being your 30-year-old self, yeah. I don't know how long ago that That's was. That's five years ago. Okay, five years ago. <laughs> what advice would you give yourself? Ooh, play, play a bit more. Yeah, I would say that. So, so you're a bit too serious at 30, were you? Well... No, I think I was I was playful in certain aspects, but I think one thing that I've started to realise as I've gotten older is that actually it's all right to bring some joy and fun and personality into what you do and that if you are going to be, I don't know, interacting with other people, even if it's in a quote-unquote business context, bring your personality into it as something which is en- enriching. Yeah, it took me quite a bit of time to get to the point where I was comfortable enough and courageous enough to be like, well, maybe I can play a bit with this and I can maybe swear a little bit or put some poo emojis in my talk. <laughs> and that's often the thing that creates that sense of warmth. So yeah, I would have liked to have done that sooner. Great. I love that. It's <laughs> fantastic. And who are your role models? Well, a few people that spring to mind who kind of just went, fuck it, I'm going to do my own thing. These are people that I'm sure you know. So people like Frida Kahlo, yeah. who was just so much more interesting than Diego Rivera. Sorry, everyone who loves him, but no, she was brilliant. And the amount of challenges that she overcame and her pride, she was proud of who she was and what she did. And I think that's something that we tend to poo-poo as a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. Also, Einstein and Darwin, they didn't have high positions of academic office, if you want to put it in that way. And they were fucking amazing. So every time I get the imposter syndrome, I think, well, Einstein was a lowly teacher. He got rejected so many times for his ideas. And look how that revolutionized the world. Darwin was someone who just happened to get onto the ship and ended up becoming someone who totally changed our understanding of evolution. So I think no matter how small you imagine yourself to be, we each have absolute multitudes within us and to not diminish ourselves by not taking the chance. Fabulous. So Natalie, have you got a motto in life? Yes, there is one that has been really helpful for me the last couple of years, which is this quote by Anais Nin, who was an amazing writer. And the quote is, And the day came when the risk to remain tight in the bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. Whoa. I love that one. That's incredible. I've never heard that one. She was amazing. Well, on that (laughs) wonderful note, I wanted to really thank you so much for today. Thank you. We would love it if it's okay with you to help our listeners find you and your work. (laughs) So how would they go about doing that? Okay, so my name is a bit unusual. So if you Google it, lots of things will come up. So if you just search for Natalie Nahai, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, but that's my art stuff. And then also, if you feel like you want to hear some of the podcasts, it's called The Hive Podcast. The Hive, H-I-V-E. Yes, The Hive Podcast. And the book is called Webs of Influence, The Psychology of Online Persuasion. Brilliant. NatalieNahai.com. I don't know. That's kind of like all my things. <laughs> Amazing. We can fully recommend that. Thank you. Thank and we'll put them in the show notes. And we will put it in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. So it'll be easy to find. So, well, on that note, thank you so much again. 
And we've really, really loved this conversation. (laughs) It's been so much fun. It's been playful. Good. Need a bit more play in our lives, I think. uh, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I'm sure that we will be talking and connecting in the future. I'd love that. Wow. Wasn't that Aeneas Nin quote just so beautiful? Yeah, it really was. You know, one of the things I thought was so interesting in our conversation with Natalie was her thoughts on how she struggles about really juggling her life. And I I think a lot of us feel this. Well, at least I know I do. Yeah, me too. You know, it's that challenge of whether you focus on one thing to really get things done versus feeding that need for variety and and different outlets. Absolutely. I actually think it's one of life's sort of ultimate decisions or trade-offs. I also really loved how Natalie's work and advice is also research and evidence-based, and then she takes that and synthesizes it with other insights and makes it incredibly practical so you can use it in the real world. Absolutely. And how about that one-liner that Natalie shared? I love that. I think it's so valuable to have a few different one-liners up one sleeve for all kinds of different scenarios. And I know I'm certainly going to keep that one up my sleeve in future too. Me too. Well, that's this week's episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for our next episode, our final how-to episode for the year. Looking forward to that. Ciao for now, everyone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.